Beyond the Wrench with Jay Ganinen from Wrenchway. Welcome back to another edition of Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Ganinen and I am your host. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that we want to hear from you. Do you have a topic or guest ideas for the show? Send us an email with your suggestions and requests to info at wrenchway.com. For today's episode, I have with me Gabe Christian, who is the chief technician at Import Performance, and we're going to go into what all that means because it means a lot. Gabe, how are you today? Good. Good. Thanks for having me. Good. Thanks for joining us. I really enjoyed our pre-show meeting that we had, just learning more about your background. And I think what you have to talk about today applies to the independent side. It applies to the dealer side, just general service management and kind of growing up as a technician in the industry and and maybe learning some things that weren't so desirable and and, and really how that led to where you're at today. So, uh, And that really is where I want to start was how did you get into this business and what made you want to be a technician first? I, I, I kind of, like we talked before, I do want to start from the beginning because I feel like talking to people, it's it's not super common that how young I started. So I just, yeah, kind of like to start from the beginning and just say that was, I was one of those kids that, you know, annoyed my parents because I took everything apart. Now, you know, I don't remember the first stories, but apparently... I mean, I wasn't even five years old when I took my parents' alarm clock apart and, of course, destroyed it. You know, I didn't put it back together. It was just to see, to count the pieces, you know, how many pieces are actually inside this thing. But so, and and that's how I was from a very young beginning. So even in elementary school, middle school, I mean, I took apart all my toys and actually combined them together. I worked on everyone's bikes in the neighborhood. I even found like a, an old like invoice duplicate copy paper, you know, and like would do bills for neighbors to, you know, replace their derailleur and things on their bike. So I was at a really young age, just kind of destined to do that. So I almost feel lucky in a sense. My two teenage boys now are really trying to figure out exactly what they want to be. You know, I have a 16 and an 18 year old. And I, I just didn't really have that issue. I, I just already knew, you know, what I was going to do, really. I guess with cars, you know, most boys like cars. And I, I, I got my first car when I was, I think, at the I was almost 15, but still 14. I, I bought a, a Volkswagen Beetle with no engine, you know, for a great deal, of course, and did absolutely everything wrong on it. And you know, I, I took everything apart and cleaned it and painted things and then forgot how it went back together, you know, and this, that's how you learn everything. But eventually, of course, that was my car for years. And in high school, I, I was fortunate, and this is a whole other topic of conversation, right? Like uh, high school's not having auto programs, but I, I did have a good auto program in my school and I was able, even able to do it two periods, my junior and senior year. So that was really great for me. My, I, th- I think my senior year, I had two periods of auto shop and then a metal shop I went right into. So I literally just worked on people's cars and my car and made my old, my own toolbox, learned to really? weld, make parts. So yeah, it was, it was really easy for me to, sign up for tech school when I was still in my senior year of high school. And, and, and that's what I ended up doing. I, I went to San Jose and went to Sequoia Institute, which is now a UTI, I believe. But ah. this, this was, you know, I graduated high school in 93. So it's been a, how, a bit of a minute. How, so talk to me a little bit about that early curiosity, because I feel like that's what I see out of all of the really great technicians is that, it probably started early in life that they had some curiosity as to how things worked. And I don't think your story is different than a lot of people in that it didn't start off by you successfully being able to put things back together. Mm-hmm. But by by tearing it apart, I feel like there's just so much 
there's so much value in being able to see how things work and being able to to really kind of piece it together in your mind of really you know hey I took this off what does this actually do and and really being able to have that discovery period that if if you don't have that and you go into this trade without that curiosity ahead of time I think it puts you at a severe disadvantage because you just don't have that that knowledge of how to take things apart, how things look once you do take them apart, and maybe the functionality that goes behind that. So I, I, I'm really interested in learning kind of the psyche behind what drove that in the first place, just a natural curiosity to, to see how things work. I I think you're right. It is a curiosity to see how things work, but it's also, a, I think, an idea of not having any fear about taking stuff apart. I think a lot of people don't want to get into something because they fear they will break it or not be able to get it back together. And, you know, to figure out that stuff and go through the trials of, you know, not doing it correctly the first or second time, you know, you just have to kind of be brave and just dive into things really, I think is where a lot of that stuff comes from. And yeah, part of it is having the, the type of brain, I think that is constantly trying to figure out how things work and new technologies. And once you, you know, learn how a carbureted engine works, you know, then it's really easy to understand how a fuel injected engine works. And then a direct injected engine, you know, having those basics, it's easier to add on to that. But really, I think a lot of it is being, you know, courageous and just kind of going for it and just, you know, diving into things and taking stuff apart and figuring out some stuff as you go. That's where a lot of people have to start. There's, there's not, there's not like an education system that really, you know, supports that sort of beginning. <laughs> you hit on a really important point there, though, and it's one that I think I struggled with when I was growing up, which was technology was evolving, things were expensive. It was hard to touch a car. I remember my dad when I was a kid, like, hey, if you cross these wires, you're going to blow up the ECM and <laughs> you're going to be in a lot of trouble because it's going to cost you, you know, it's going to cost the shop a thousand bucks, right? And I'll forever remember that being ingrained in my head and be, not having access, even though I grew up in a shop, to things to be able to tear apart and with, you know, without the expectation of getting it back together, right? And I think you're, you're, you're spot on with that. And I think of even my dad's story, we still, I wish we had it, but they grew up on a farm. And one of the very first things that he did was he took the rear end from a lawnmower and combined it with like a Honda 50 front end, like a little dirt bike. And it had a three-wheeler even before three-wheelers uh, were a thing, excellent. right? And like, yeah. And, but it, like his, he thought differently <laughs> than I do. Right. And like mm -hmm. the, to have the creativity in the ability to to look at something and be like, oh, you know what? If I pull this from there and do this, like I can make this work and make something pretty cool out of it. Mm -hmm. I think elaborating on that just a little bit too is I really enjoy putting things back together exactly how they were, like from the factory. Like for me, and that's what I really instill in my technicians is like, you know, we are not the engineers they're extremely smart and everything on this engine has its place and nothing is there for just to put on there for no reason, you know? So I really like to get everything back exactly how it was with the right pieces and that sort of thing. There's like a, definitely a sense of accomplishment with that too, or, you know, some other technician or person couldn't tell that it was even messed with, but yet you had the engine a hundred percent torn apart. I love that too. I like mm -hmm. I I love classic cars and you see the ability of like those really really good re car restoration businesses or people that restore cars that you know it's the paint marks and making sure that everything is exactly detailed to how it came out of the factory. And I do think that takes a special breed, right? Like I think having that much that much attention to detail is so difficult and that's why when you go to one of those really, really high-end car shows and you see the attention to detail, I don't think the common person would even understand how how talented those people are to get everything in that exact order, even down to an initial paint mark that comes out of the factory back in the 60s or 50s or whenever it came out. is It's just a different level of attention to detail. 
For sure. Yeah. Some people take it almost a little bit too far, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, like un- unrealistic expectations on a, you know, a car to be used as a car. But, but yeah, yeah. I just really like, I, I believe in, you know, I guess the, the engineers and the manufacturing process and how everything works. And, and most of that stuff you'll find, I mean, I've, I've been doing this job literally my whole life, like I just explained. So I've been a technician for like 30 years and, and, 90% of the time or more, you know, all those OE parts and gaskets are the best thing that you can put back on an engine, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying we don't use aftermarket parts, but there's a, there's definitely a, a lot of good ones out there, but typically it's hard to beat on an original design unless it had some like fault from the beginning, you know, which is which isn't that common either, especially this day and age. I will say you might be the first technician I've ever heard compliment an engineer. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, there there is that side for sure. I mean, we, we do a lot of European cars. I know you probably hear a lot of negative stuff towards that. And and they they do have different ways of designing a car. You know, so much is for the, the, the look of it is just huge. And the look and the style almost comes first before the, you know, when you open the hood, it hardly looks like an engine on a, a BMW or Audi. You know, it's just all just covers to make it quiet and you know it it looks like it could be electric or something but you know deep under all that plastic is an engine and and that that can definitely be frustrating but still you know the way that they figure out all those materials and everything is extremely impressive and you know how long everything lasts these days and the, the power they're all achieving from you know smaller engines it's it's truly amazing it is and i i had the the pleasure, I guess, of working for a manufacturer on the equipment side for quite a few years. And that was one of the things that really blew me away when I had that relationship was I would have, I I was a a factory rep, right? So I'd go out to all these different dealerships and I would talk to the the technicians and you'd hear the the grumblings of a technician saying, ah, this damn engineer doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. And, and so I, I got in the habit, I got to be good friends with the engineers. And so I'd say, well, all right, let's call them up. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd call up the person that would either have designed the part or had worked with the people that the team that had designed the part and get their thought process as to why they designed it a certain way or why they did something a certain way. And almost every single time we did that, the technician came away with more insight into why something was designed the way it was. And and a lot of times the engineers would be like, yeah, we know that drain plug was in a terrible spot, but there was nothing we could do. We couldn't move it here because of X. Mm-hmm. And that was such a kind of mind-opening experience for me to understand, the, like, uh, through the look at it through the lens of a engineer because it was just a – it's a different outlook on things. They're designing it a, a, a certain way for a reason, and it could be because of cost. It could be because of safety, you know, a variety of different things. But it did give me a little more patience. I still get frustrated with where they put things on certain things, but, but at least they have reasoning behind it. Yeah, when I was – I was a dealer tech briefly, and I, I did work on an issue on a – I worked for Toyota, and it was the, when the Tundras just came out, and they had some braking issues. And so I, I worked with the reps on that. So that was a you know similar experience where we had a lot of pulsation problems, and I was the technician to you know kind of help them figure that out and try to get them to basically last longer without warping the front rotors. And it was kind of cool to – see the changes they made to, you know, get to that solution. What did you, did you learn anything through that process? I did. I, I really kind of enjoyed it, even though I, you don't, I didn't make as much money because you can't flag as much on stuff like that. Cause it's mostly warranty time, but I, I enjoyed it. I, I learned, and actually this is something we still do in my shop. So I guess that's a cool connection, but we would replace the rotors on a Tundra and then machine them with an on-car lathe. And so, and what we found out is even if you put a brand new Toyota rotor on a relatively new Toyota, if you put a dial indicator on that and set it all up properly, you still would typically have, yeah, one to three thousandths run out. Pretty amazing. And it's it can be from, a, you know, a teeny little speck of dirt or 
you know, the rotor was a little warped or the hub was a little warped or the uh, internals of the bearing. It didn't really take much because, you know, as you go out on the diameter of that rotor, you get, you can have more run out on the end there. And that's what you'll feel, you know, in the pedal and in the truck. So in my shop today, we actually have two pro cut brake lays and that's how we brake jobs. We only cut the rotors on the car. And even when we replace the rotors, we cut them on the car. And it literally makes zero comebacks because those machines are so amazing. Wow. They cut I it did to not un- know that. Yeah, they cut it to under a thousandth of runout. And so they're literally, you know, perfect once you get done cutting with those things. But the, the other thing that the Tundra did was they, they upsized the caliper. They did replace a bigger, they put a bigger caliper and brake and, and rotor. They kind of, I, I want to say in 02, 03, they, they just put bigger brakes on them basically. So it was, it just started out with too small of, of brakes. It's funny that you say that because I had just recently been through quite a few shops and I was seeing more brake lathes than I had in a long time. And I don't know, like, I was like, I thought we were going away from this. I thought we were going to the simple replacement and because of the the cost of a, a brake rotor versus the cost of labor, it seemed like it was mm. far more replaced. And when you say that now, I'm like, all right, I, that that makes me get a little better understanding of why that's yeah. the thing. You know, and I, and that's how I have done it forever, you know, for 20 years in my shop. And I have helped other shop owners in the past with certain issues. And that's all I've always what I've told them. And I have had some opposition to that where people think, oh, that's such a waste of time. We just, you just got to buy good rotors and just replace them. Like, why are you doing so much work, you know? And so not everyone believes that, but I'm, I'm a firm believer. And like I said, and, and part of it is, you know, the brake, the brake job will last longer because you're starting out as straight as possible. Right. And yeah, once you just get in that habit of doing them, it doesn't take the technician very long. I mean, most of the guys in here, it's still an hour job or so to, you know, do a brake job with, you know, good quality pads and resurfacing the rotors with the on-car lathe. So, And the limitations and comebacks, it feels like brakes, even though we've been doing them for a million years, it feels <laughs> like there's still a fair amount of comebacks when it comes to brakes and squeaking and all of that oh, yeah. fun, or pulsations, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and a lot of those come straight from the manufacturer. I have, I drive a relatively new sprinter cause we work on tons of them <laughs> and, and the, and those people, when they buy an expensive car, you know, they want the brakes quiet, but those don't come quiet from the factory. And, and, you know, I have proof of that because I drive one. It, it only has, you know, 7,000 miles on it. And yeah, when it gets, when they get dirty in the winter, they are super loud. And so it's good to have that knowledge. So when customers complain about it, like my brakes squeak after you did the brakes, you know, we can be like, well, that's factory. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, even if we try different pads and stuff like that, when they, when they get wet or dirty, they kind of sing a little. They sing you a song. They do. So is this Sprinter your daily driver? Right now it is. Yeah, we we work on lots of them here in Bend, Oregon. So and it's been a long time as well, so we've really specialized in them. So it was it's good to, you know, get one of those vehicles and we did all the suspension and made it look real nice and kind of did a mild build out on the inside and I've let some of my service advisors take it camping as well and and I, and I've been, you know, driving it. It's it's pretty nice to actually take up to the ski resort here because then you have like a, a nice heated changing room so there there's some nice things about them so i'm uh, they're they're getting way more popular on the on the general consumer side than i ever thought they would i i when they had first come out i remember we would sell i had worked for a shop that we would do conversions and and have the AC converters in them. And, you know, it was this whole big job. And I did not see really the opportunity to sell it to a general consumer over what a commercial piece would be. But we even have one of our developers, Evan, he is, he's got his own that he's going through and redoing the whole thing right now. And he keeps sending me pictures of it. And I'm like, man, that is cool. Like I, I yeah. never in a million years would have thought that's what they would turn out to be. It's, it's fun to see how many different, you know, ways of people have built them out on the inside is pretty amazing. 
But yeah, that yeah. was that's how we started working on them. There was a, actually a solar fleet in town that installs you know solar panels. They've been in Oregon for a long time, and we started working on their Sprinter vans. Man, 10 years ago when they first kind of came out and that's, we, you know, we worked on all their other vehicles. And so we took those on and, and then from there, yeah, these days we do work on some fleets of sprinters, but most of them are, you know, privately owned, really nice built out sprinters that most people daily drive, you know, especially now that they have the four wheel drive ones, we get snow around here. So you kind of need that. Cost the cost about the same as a house. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and, you, and and the trick is in Oregon, you can actually do an RV loan on these things. So you could buy, you know, a hundred and something thousand dollar Sprinter and, and spread the term of the loan out. So you're, you're kind of just making like a mortgage payment and you have a really sweet RV slash daily driver van life mobile. So pretty cool. <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm jealous. That sounds awesome. Technicians, are you looking for a new job? Even if you're just casually looking, you need to check out Reverse Job Posts. Reverse Job Posts flips a traditional job board around. You can now fill out a short questionnaire and let shops reach out to you with job opportunities. No resume needed. The best part is all of your contact info remains anonymous until you're ready to share it. It's a great way to explore new job opportunities and it's completely free to use. To create a Reverse Job Post, simply download the free Wrenchway mobile app or visit wrenchway.com and click on the Reverse Job Post link. We've also included some links in the show notes. Let's let's get back to your career a little bit. I want to talk about some of your experience coming up. You started as a technician and had then really gone to running your own shop. But I want to start with that technician side because I think there's a lot we can learn. When we talked before the show, there was a, a lot of things that I think you can pick out of there. But I want to talk about that without picking on any particular shop or anything like that. Just being able to talk through maybe some of the things you learned coming up as a technician and maybe how that has impacted your management style as you've run your own shop. Yeah. I I feel once again, I was super fortunate to work for some of the independent shops I worked at because I I did work for some really good ones. Right after tech school, I worked for just a, a smaller shop in Arcata, California. I was like my first, you know, full-time technician job. I did work part-time while I went to tech school in a big chain outfit. But, you know, I worked at an independent shop there. And then I moved out to Colorado and moved around a little bit, but worked at a a bunch of really cool shops. In Colorado, I worked for Goodyear shop that had some really good technicians in there. A lot of the technicians were from the South, actually. It was kind of of interesting. They loved NASCAR, but these guys... I would say didn't have technical training, but man, I learned just how to be a, a really amazing, you know, mechanic there. They could fix, you know, everything. And a lot of times it might've not been with a scan tool, but they just worked on so many cars. They would know, you know, things were wrong before it even, you know, came into the shop sort of thing. I worked on a, a fleet out in Colorado as well, where I worked on all Chevy trucks. So that was a different environment. I even worked on a, some heavy equipment and snow cats out there, which was pretty fun. Wow. So really I've, I've kind of, you know, done a bunch of different things. And let's see in back in California, I worked at a shop ran by a gentleman that did do management success back in the day. He was, you know, a, a, a guy kind of like me who went to tech school right after got management training and had a really well-run shop in Northern California where, you know, he really cared. He would look over the cars. We would do the courtesy inspections where, you know, we were finding work to do on the cars, but also, you know, we were doing a really great inspection on the customer's car to make sure everything was safe. And, you know, and people really just responded to that and love that. So I, I really learned a lot with, with Mike and he still has that shop down there. He doesn't, he's not in the shop very often, but that's still a a good shop in that area. And so taking that moving to Oregon is when I worked at my first dealership experience. And yeah, so for, for me working at a dealership and coming from independence, you know, I think like a lot of consumers, they, you have the idea that you're kind of working at a higher level or you're, you're going to be 
at a level because you know the they're selling the new cars there it's you know the this is like the manufacturer shop so to speak you know they they can do the warranty work and i was i was pretty blown away actually just the whole scenario of you know working at a dealer i mean i had a, a fancy uniform on i was kind of put out in the shop with a, a bunch of other technicians it was a fairly large one and it it wasn't that much of an interview and they they really didn't know my expertise i i had quite a bit of experience by then. I think I had eight years experience before I went to the, the dealership and I, I started doing, you know, big jobs right away. You know, I took a brand new Celica. I've, I can't even remember what I was doing, honestly, but I took the complete dash out of a Celica. It was like my first or second day. And, you know, some of the other guys in the shop were kind of eyeballing me like, wow, that new kid is just ripping that whole car apart. And I believe I did a good job and put it all back together. Everything worked, but I was extremely blown away that no one looked over my work. And I, I just pulled it around the shop and put it out in the front and the service advisor delivered it to the, to the customer. And that was that. So was, there's a, and I was used to trying to impress the owner and trying to really do a good job for the customer and having more of that connection with the owner and customer. And kind of a team where I really felt like an individual out there. Like some some guys are really nice and talk to me, but I think more so maybe saw me as a threat. Some of them just wouldn't really talk to me. You know, it wasn't like the the lunchroom wasn't like some amazing environment where everyone was like, come on in, we're having burgers today. You know, like it was, it was like, you know, one person in there that wouldn't talk to me, you know, so then most people took off. It was just really really different from my, you know, independent shops and, and honestly, maybe a little bit of a letdown. Sure. I, I did learn to, you know, work the flat rate system, the commission and was really successful at it. And that was, I would say a game for me and it was pretty fun. There was one. Especially if you're good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing you really have to try hard and be on it and, and, and learn to, be really efficient, basically. Like you, you know, every step you take has to be kind of thought out. But I, I got to the point where there was one guy in there, Kenny. It was either me or Kenny had the top flag flag hours every payroll, you know. And the 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 owner loved that. He even said thanks to me once. But that was about the only appreciation I got from <laughs> the owner of the whole dealership. But you know, working at this place for I want to say I was there for a year and a half. It really, I mean, I would say it's the reason I started my own shop because I feel like I got all this wide array of great experiences at these independent shops, a fleet shop, you know, even doing heavy equipment and then working at the dealership and understanding like, wow, there's just a lot of different ways to repair people's cars for customers and to do this business. And I really feel like I know what I guess a, a good way to do it is and maybe the right way, you know, to treat the customers and, you know, get the cars fixed properly, you know, using, you know, using the, the OE parts and technology, but do it in an independent shop where you have that customer relation and, you know, you can do quality control checks on a car to make sure everything's perfect to have that double check, which I feel is really important. And that's what we do in my shop. So yeah, that's that's really what motivated me to do it. And you know, I just uh, I was really lucky at the time. My wife had a, a good job. <laughs> that helps. It's, yes, it, it was it, it was perfect scenario because she worked for ODOT here in Oregon, like the Department of Transportation. She was a geologist, so she went to a lot more more schooling than I did, which was worked really well because you know my first year in business, I made like negative a thousand dollars. You know. <laughs> It's, uh, I didn't, <laughs> I knew how to fix the cars and I was fairly good at talking to customers and, you know, figuring out that part of it. And I was excited enough to, you know, keep going and figuring it out. But yeah, I, I didn't charge enough and didn't mark up parts and I had to learn pretty quick to actually keep things going. So it was, I, it was perfect that she had a good job for a couple of years while I figured out what to do so I could actually make us some money. <laughs> Well, and I want to touch on that more, but before we go into that side and your transition to business, 
I do want to point out a valuable lesson for those that are listening, whether you're on the dealer side or the independent side or fleet side, or I don't care what you're working on. What you talked about there was a a complaint that we hear often across the country from any type of shop, which is there are times when technicians feel like a number, right? They don't feel like they're appreciated. They don't feel like they're treated all that well. And one thing that you said stuck out to me was that the owner came up and said, thank you once. And it's it's a common thing that we hear all the time that they the technicians just don't feel appreciated, that they feel like they're nothing more than a number. And what you just said is what so many technicians say to us and seems like such low hanging fruit that we could really learn from as an industry. We wonder why we've got a shortage of people. Well, right there, right? Like we, that is something we've got to get better at as an industry. We've got to get better at showing that appreciation and and really respecting the people that work for us. Because at the end of the day, techs are pretty darn smart people and can do a lot of things, but in a lot of cases, maybe don't get the notoriety or don't get the appreciation that I think they deserve. And, and that's, you know, to me, I, if I'm being frank, I think a big reason why we find ourselves in the position that we do today. Yeah, I mean, you're 100% correct and that and that is a really simple thing and it's it's almost silly that owners managers don't say it enough, you know. You know, there there's you know, in this industry for being a technician and being an owner, there is a a huge lack of support and education and you know, avenues to do this really. So, so much of this I think is just owners that haven't had business training they're trying to figure this out and they don't have time to take on the training and go to the next step and understand how to be a boss and do those simple things like yes thank you for a good job this week you know those little simple things because they are you know trying to fix this car that is a nightmare that no one can fix and they're you know trying to deal with this customer that doesn't understand what we're you know trying to do in the first place and and just dealing with all these things in an auto repair shop. I mean, the the supplies in an auto repair shop alone are enough to keep one person busy on keeping everything stocked so you can have an efficient shop like I do. It, it is unreal how, like, our stock list is amazing. And it's all just to keep, you know, these technicians moving smoothly. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of things and there's a lot of simple things like that 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 get dropped and really I think it's a, just a, a lack of you know getting lack educated. Of awareness. Yeah, yes. lack of awareness yep. and that like yep. it 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 is that simple stuff. So often we will point to flat rate or we'll we'll point to low pay in the industry. And while I do think that's absolutely a factor, I I don't think that's the the overwhelming you know, issue. I think they're, you know, we, we have to make sure we pay our people well, but like treat them like human beings. Like that, that would go so much further than, you know, what a lot of shops do. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I've noticed as we've grown this business on our side is there's a pretty distinct difference between a good shop and a bad shop. And it, it, I think technicians have gotten a little bit better at educating themselves and understanding the difference between the two and maybe asking more questions in an interview process because they have a little bit more leverage to be able to ask those questions now. Um, mm-hmm. But I think fundamentally, we've just got to get better. That There's just no excuse for us not taking that little bit of time that it takes. And even on the independent side, right? Like you had mentioned those technicians that go into that management role. And I want to learn more about your transition over that direction, because I think you were ahead of the curve and how you approached it. But we still see a lot of that too, where it's like, Hey, I'll just do it on my own. It's easier. I don't have to teach somebody or like, you know, rather than going out and training somebody, just grabbing the wrench and going and doing it themselves. Are you still seeing that as far as in the industry, maybe not having the patience to wait for somebody to develop? Oh yes. And and I do it myself. And that's, you know, the discipline of (laughs) being an owner. Like, I mean, really, I, I was just, I had my top 20 group, you know, this is a, a thing I do every week where I talk with six under six other shop owners. And we were just talking about this, how, 
you know, it's typically an employee issue where we lose an employee or something happens where we're all of a sudden like kind of frazzled and thrown into the mix again. And we, and we feel like we have to jump back into the shop and fix things. So the shop doesn't start producing less money. You know, we, we completely lose our cool basically when we, you know, we, we just need to have the confidence, you know, like my shop's been over, you know, around over 20 years. We, we're, we've been voted the best shop in this area four years in a row. Awesome. We have a, a stellar reputation. Like I really shouldn't be that worried if I need someone else. I mean, I'm going to find someone else that might be a little dip and I still have a big staff, you know, we're going to be fine, but we tend to, you know, freak out and I tend to want to go into the shop and start diagnosing cars and help the technicians out. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm not a technician anymore, (laughs) you know? So that, yeah, that is, maybe that is ingrained in technicians from when we first started working on cars, you know, like we have to figure this out and we didn't figure it out for the the first three times, but we just keep working and we're going to fix it and we're, we're stubborn. That's it. We're really stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best way to explain technicians as a whole. We're stubborn, but I think that's what makes great technicians too. So I, I, as you look back over your career and that transition from the shop to the front end, is there anything you would have done differently or would you have approached it differently or tried to learn more about something prior to coming into an office type of role or really a leadership type of role? I know we get that question a lot too from technicians that might want to go look at opening their own shop someday or even just becoming a service manager or whatever it might be. But I'm curious and I always love to hear the reflection part of this, of looking back over your career and seeing, hey, I might have done this a little differently had I do it, had I had to do it over again. So curious if you've got anything that like over the course of your career, you look back and say, I might have done that a little different. For sure. I mean, anyone that doesn't say that is not telling the truth, right? I mean, like you said, I think I was maybe a little ahead of the curve because I decided to get educated really early on after I opened the shop. I I do help other shop owners and I've talked to some that literally has owned their shop as long as I have 20 years before they got management help. And it's just like, I'm like, Oh my God, why, why could you not get help? You know, it's, it's not too expensive to get educated, to figure this stuff out so you can just make things easier on yourself and actually start profiting and, and get to the next, you know, step in your life without, you know, turning 65 and just then trying to figure it out, you know. For me, yeah, I I was in my second shop building that I was renting and I I had two technicians as when I I joined management success. So I think that was 18 years ago. <clears throat> Went to one of their they kind of they travel around and do what am I trying to say? They have a big event where you can watch some speakers and they, they try to get you hooked on that. And I just kind of signed up right away because I knew that this is what I'm going to be doing. I know I need the help. It does seem like a lot of money, but I'm just going to put it on my credit card, like the rest of my shop equipment at the time. <laughs> and I just, you know, and I just went for it because it's that important. Like I I, you know, I didn't fool myself and, and saying that I, I know how to run the business and I know which, how the numbers work and how much I should be profiting and charging, you know, I was completely winging it. And you find yourself, you know, wearing too many hats, basically. Like I was a technician, a service advisor, an accountant trying to do marketing owner. You, you know, you just can't do it. And the first step of course, is pulling yourself out of the shop which for technicians is maybe one of the hardest steps. And a lot of people, you know, have a party or technician owners have a party when they take home their toolbox because that's a huge step. Like, and, and that's for some mechanics, that's what they have to do. They're like, okay, I, I won't stop working on cars unless I don't have my tools here. So that's how they force themselves. But really I didn't have to do that. I was, you know, I made myself a service advisor and a manager and just had technicians and you, you just have to, you know, do that. You can't be a, a technician and be a service advisor and run the shop. You know, you have to get rid of some of the hats that you wear. And then 
after, you know, the next step from that is having a service advisor. So then you're, you know, maybe an owner and a service advisor part-time, but then you have a service advisor and technicians. And then it expands from there. You know, you have multiple service advisors, multiple technicians, and then you can actually be more of an owner and, you know, do the marketing, do the accounting, do the, the planning for the year, you know, start making your playbook so you have things to fall back on when, you know, the same things keep happening. And that's kind of the, you know, process and, and, and order of things. But yeah, you, you need guidance, you need education. Like I've said a few times during our little talk here, there's, there's no, you know, tech school trains you to be a good technician, but not to be a shop owner. You know, there's no direct schooling. It's not, you know, like to be in some other industry, you know, like my wife being a geologist, you learn all about that and you can actually become a geologist, but there's not like a (laughs) shop owner college. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's why we need this training. How how much of it was trust or like being able to trust the guys in the shop that, you know, they're going to deliver on what you're selling up front because you were used to being in the back. You're used to Mm -hmm. doing the repairs on your own, or at least being able to kind of run your own quality control in the back because you have a, a, your finger on the pulse of everything going on in the back. But when you take that step into the the office, you have to trust that the people in the back are going to do the work that that you expect to the standards you expect. Well, that I didn't trust them. Yeah, <laughs> I think one. you're being honest. And, yeah, yes, and and that is where you know you have to become an owner and make policies, and also also the quality control check sheet. You know, it, it's something that I made up. You know, I'm guessing probably 15 years ago, maybe 14 years ago. I I made it up on my own because I couldn't keep looking over every car that was going back to the customer. And I literally would look over every car. And sometimes I would find things and that would make me more nervous, right? So, yeah, it's a simple sheet. Like we, in my shop, we do everything digitally as far as the inspection and the repair order is on a tablet for the technician. But our quality control check sheet is on paper. And it goes, you know, any kind of big job, another technician looks it over and has to check out and make sure that original concern is taken care of. And there's a bunch of other things we check off of. And that's what freed me up and to build my trust for, for these technicians. And, and part of it is, you know, building that trust and training the technician to, to, do, to do things a certain way. In my shop, again, which is different from my dealer experience, we all try to do things consistently. You know, we mm. use all use the same silicone. We have the same procedures. We there's certain things that we torque down every time with a you know a nice torque wrench. Where other shops, people can do things a bunch of different ways. So it's kind of a a crapshoot for the customer what technician you're going to get. You could you could get the the right technician that works on that car, or you could get the you know, the, the kid that just moved up from Loop Tech, you know, you just, you know, you never know, or, or my shop, you know, we, we train together and we have a, a whole book of policies. I actually have a handbook right next to me. I was going to show you, but we, <laughs> I mean, the technicians have, I want to say 30 policies and, and what that is is certain ways that we do things, you know, certain mm. way we even categorize stuff on the inspection. So all that stuff, you know, when they, when they join our team, you know, they're trained on that a couple different times. And then we have, you know, meetings throughout the year, kind of revisiting that stuff. And the technicians that have been here for a while, you know, they just are all used to that and they have that down pat. So that is all what builds the trust and consistency. And how I'm curious if you've got any advice when it comes to being a technician can be hard on your body. You see it from, you know, maybe somebody just has a kid, right? They they have a baby and they're not sleeping at night or mm-hmm. they have some stuff going on at home, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, how do you ensure that when they walk in the door that they're going to be consistent with everything that they do? Because it being a human is very difficult <laughs> at times and yeah. that, that can be a struggle to be consistent. I mean, we can't get rid of the, the human factor with, you know, these these technical jobs that we're doing, you know, I, I always remind the guys about the Honda transmission I rebuilt four times, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I was a, 
I would like to think a good technician that did complicated stuff like that. I, I rebuilt a lot of transmissions, you know, engines did really technical wiring repair jobs, that, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, everyone can make mistakes and, you know, trying to, I guess, eliminate some of those by, by weeding through some of the jobs that we don't want to do. And then the right amount of training and having the correct tools as well, you know, all that stuff goes into, I guess, just kind of eliminating, you know, rebuilding the transmission four times. <laughs> How upset were you when you had to rebuild it the fourth time? <laughs> oh, God, that's a good question. You know, I was, <laughs> to be a good technician, like, you need to kind of have that mentality, you know, especially diagnosing and figuring out complicated things. I mean, if you get too frustrated your first time around, right? You're, you're going to have trouble getting to the end of that problem. So yeah, for, for me, it was in a, a kind of a race car basically that, you know, broke a bunch of parts inside there. So everything had to be completely disassembled and put back together, which normally you can kind of keep things more together in chunks, you know? So that was, you know, part of the issue, but, you know, it's, it's a bummer of course, but it, it's, all the, that more rewarding when you do get it right. And the, and the customers, you know, I like to think about this a lot too, because, you know, my shop makes mistakes also. Like we do the quality checks. I do have some really amazing technicians in here that have had a, a lot of training and been trained by me for years. And we, we have stuff happen, you know, and it's sometimes our fault, sometimes parts fault, sometimes just really crazy scenarios. We just had one just recently, actually, with a, a little plastic fuel line with a clip, you know, no one can really explain why it didn't stay on there, but we, you know, we couldn't see anything wrong with it the second time around sort of thing. But with the customer, you know, if you take care of these things properly and honestly and get things handled right away, give them a free car wash, really explain to them, hey, sorry, you know, we totally took care of it. I'm not, we honestly don't even understand what really happened with this one, but there's, you know, no issue now and you're, you know, totally good to go. We take care of the repair for free. They actually will become more important of a customer than if the job went smoothly. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes even the worst jobs where we have to warranty something larger than that and their car's down, we have to give them a loaner. And, you know, if that customer is reasonable and trusts you, and you explain everything properly and just really take care of people. I mean, a lot of times that, that person will go out and tell five people how amazing we are. And so, yeah, it, it can be a win-win in those scenarios. That's pretty good marketing in general. If maybe a, <laughs> look at it from a, a marketing perspective. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Wrench. We'd like to take a minute to talk about this week's sponsor, Full Bay. Full Bay makes life easier for just about everyone in the shop. Its streamlined workflow helps boost tech efficiency and productivity, meaning more vehicles and more revenue can roll into the shop. Shop customers are big fans of their software too, because it gives them their own portal to authorize work, see how things are going, and even communicate with the shop. Guess what? Owners love Full Bay as well, but not only because it lets them see how things are going during a day at the beach. The app makes it easier for them to send estimates and invoices. And with full bay payments and fleet payments, they've made it easier than ever for your customers to pay their invoices. Want to learn more about full bay? Head to fullbay.com slash wrenchway. I want to ask you from the technician side now on the consistency thing, because what you had talked about was, you know, putting your owner hat on and being able to control the work that comes in, being able to control some of the other external elements that might not be what a, a normal technician can control. But I would like to know if you've got any advice for that technician that's out there, right? Like maybe they've been grinding for 10 years and they're, you know, maybe struggling with consistency because mm. their headspace isn't right or, you know, what, what any... Any advice like to those technicians? Like, like they're thinking of getting out of the business just because it's hard. Could be, yeah. And they're grinding away and they don't really feel rewarded or, you know. I mean, 
I, I really think, you know, comparatively to a lot of jobs, this can be a really great career. And I, I, I honestly feel like with today's equipment and the cars that say we work on per se, we, we don't work on a lot of, you know, I guess we work on sprinters, which can be fairly big, but you know, for example, we have a dedicated two post lift. It's like a 14,000 pound two post lift that has these special attachments that hook to a sprinter. And so just having this lift makes them extremely safe and easy to lift up. And, and then all the other stuff on the sprinter is not that heavy. So I really think just having like a warm, modern, comfortable heated shop where you have good equipment and lifts and so forth and and plenty of time to do things in. That's one thing that maybe I could elaborate on a little bit. I mean, a, a lot yeah. of shops, uh, I see struggle with technician efficiency. And this is a huge killer for technicians because the service advisors are basically not selling enough time to do the jobs. And, you know, some of the, you know, Mitchell mm -hmm. time or, you know, there's a couple of timing guides that, you know, give their, you know, approximate time on to say to remove some intake manifold. So, I mean, these are, we use them as, you know, just that, a guide, you know, a, a basis to start your estimate on. You know, I, I think if the car is brand new, you could probably do it in that amount of time. But a lot of times, you know, if the if the car has 200,000 miles on it and everything's kind of rusty or older, you know, European cars with all the plastic and brittle hoses, you know, we, we're, we're just experienced and we're able to actually you know, just make better estimates and give the technicians more time so they can get the job done without just completely wrecking themselves to, you know, to basically bill eight hours in an eight hour day, you know, because an efficient technician, if they're, if they're fast, smart and efficient and have experience, I mean, they should be able to beat that eight hours a day. No problem. If they try, you know, underrated part of a shop is or and really maybe not even underrated, but under we're, we don't talk about it enough, which is the impact that an advisor can have on a technician's life. And oh, because boy. if you get a bad advisor, it makes life miserable. But if you have a great one, it can make life really, really good. And I think mm -hmm. that's some of the struggle going back to the dealer side. Don't see it maybe as much on the, the independent side, but that advisor turnover can be an absolute killer for a shop because if that if that position is turning over consistently and there's no uh, consistency we we talked about consistency earlier right and if you don't mm -hmm. have that up front that makes a technician's life miserable oh yes advisor is i mean not to take some attention off the technicians but the advisors truly make everything happen in an auto repair shop you know whether yeah. the you know, whether the job goes smoothly or not so smoothly, or depending on the car, the customer, the service advisor is really, you know, the the face of the shop, you know, the, the communication with the customer and, you know, sells all the work for the technicians. So really, yeah, they make or break a shop. I am, once again, I just feel so lucky with, I have three service advisors. One is a manager slash service advisor, but they... I mean, they seriously have almost too much fun most of the time on the counter. Like that's how upbeat they are. They are awesome. just such people, persons, and so upbeat. And the you know the technicians all love them because they're you know they're ne never negative. They can handle adverse situations all the time. They truly believe in the shop and and maintenance. And we have a really great clientele with customers as well. So. I mean, all of those guys are here 7.30 every morning, just like ready to rip and, you know, just love it up there. So that, we'll, that's we'll, that's huge. We'll have to do an episode just on that at some point of yes. <laughs> how you raise a good service advisor and how you train them and, and really how you get them to have fun. Because I think that fun translates to the customer. It translates to the technicians. It translates everywhere. And if you get a good service advisor with a good personality that really brings up the shop. I like that is irreplaceable. Like they, they have such an impact on everybody. And I think that uh, again, I think is maybe one of those things that we don't give the attention to that we should, because it is, it's vital to all relationships of that shop and, and a super, super important position. Mm -hmm. 
we, as we kind of wind down on our time with the podcast, one thing I did want to touch on was some of the struggle we have with the industry is with schools, right? And being able to get actively involved with schools and being able to, you know, kind of show our support. I go to a lot of advisory committees myself, the the meetings or, you know, just on a lot of advisory committees. One of the things that I notice is a lot of times there's just not as many independent shops in those meetings as there are people from dealers, from OEs, that type of thing. And I, I want to talk about maybe the challenges of getting involved in in being an independent shop and and maybe if there's opportunity for independents to get more involved and ha- have a more active active role when it comes to to the local high schools, tech schools uh, where you might be. So curious with you as to how you see it. Are, is there an opportunity for us to get better from the independent side and, and maybe talk talk through that school side a little bit. Yeah. So I have the same experience as you as of understanding that dealerships definitely have a way to do this and kind of an in, and they they've been doing this for a long time where they will, you know, get kids and they will, I mean, there's certain credits that the kids can get like in high school or college to be in a dealership and observe and learn and even get paid. And they kind of have a set program to bring them up. I, I actually know a couple teenagers right now that are at a, a local Ford dealership here. And one started washing cars and the other one, I think started in the Lupe kind of helping them. And now, you know, the kid that started in the Lupe is actually changing oil by himself and doing all that stuff. And then the, the car wash kid is starting to move into the shop as well. And they, and so they, they have a big enough staff and kind of a procedure to bring them on and bring them through the ranks and even have kind of a set pay structure like offered to them and independence, you know, we would have to create all that. And to be honest with you, I don't have that program. What I can say though, is I have right now, you know, two technicians that have been with me one, six and one, seven years, both started when they were really young. One of them was 18 and my service advisors, pretty much my number two guy in the shop here is a kid that started with me when he yeah, just before he turned 19. And now he basically runs the shop for me. And he started out (laughs) as a shop porter. And so I do really see the value in training young kids that, you know, love the shop and the business because you really just, you know, you create this kind of individual and employee in your shop. And so they don't, you know, have the other bad habits or the other experiences to kind of already give them ideas of how they think things should be done, you know? So that's super valuable. I would say for other shops, if you have the open openings for trainees, like that would be a a good way to do that is, you know, go to like, we have a local community college here that has a decent auto program. The teacher is really helpful here and it's, he's easy to talk to. It would be easy to get some names of kids that you know, want to start out in your shop and the teacher I know as well, you know, wants the kids to go to good shops because he has been instructing the kids for the past two years. He knows the good kids that really actually want to do this for their career. So that's kind of the start of that. And then you just need like the time and the staff and the organization to basically train this, you know, step by step. And that's, and that's where all the work comes in to really make it happen. You know, like, starting a kid out at a shop porter and then teaching him to change oil and then trusting that, you know, without having any major problems happen, you have to have a lot of organized stuff in place. Like I have a, a whole check sheet for a beginning lube tech, you know, that I even have it to where he puts on the oil filter. You know, first he has to clean off. Like one step is to clean off the mounting surface where the oil filter goes. The next step is he actually has to put Vaseline on the oil filter gasket. And then once it's, you know, tightened up then he has to go three quarter of a turn and even mark that thing so the first oil changes take forever but the thing is you have to train <laughs> you <laughs> have to train right those, way, though. yes you have to train those steps and that way you know he knows that he has procedures and it's also the professional correct way to do things and then it, you can kind of go from there but it's you know each new job that he learns say the brake job and then learning that pro cut brake lathe you know you have to teach all that the first time around and then do another one with them 
before you can just let them go and expect good results. I wonder how many loose oil filters have ended technician careers <laughs> early because I, I've seen it. I know I had an individual at my, my dad's shop who ended up being an A-level technician, ended up being their service manager, really store manager for quite some time. But he, one of his first jobs, he had left an oil filter loose blew the engine on this car, had to replace an engine. And, you know, I give my dad a hard time because he oftentimes is very impatient, but he was patient with this individual and Mm. and really used it as a learning opportunity. And, you know, obviously an unfortunate situation, but it's also not that uncommon. Like you see it everywhere and it is super scary as a shop Mm -hmm. manager or owner and it is, it's kind of heartbreaking because when you see it happen, you can just see the confidence of that individual. Just oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Having just a lube, lube shop to me is a complete nightmare <laughs> yeah. because, because you have really entry level technicians doing a simple job, but either of those three tasks, you know, like the drain plug, the oil filter, filling it with oil. If they mess up on any of those simple things, the engine's toast, which is you know, the most expensive part of the car. So, yeah. you know, for me, you know, and all my technicians do oil changes here. We, you know, we do have a trainee that does the majority of them, but everyone does them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a job that's, you know, just for a, a lower level guy is basically is what I'm trying to say. It's, you know, it's, you're dealing with real stuff, even though it's an oil change, those things have to be correct. (laughs) Well, and I think when you come into the industry, that's the perception, right? And I was Mm -hmm. born and raised in this industry, but I would see it. I think when you drive past a Jiffy Lube or something like that, and they say, you know, they just basically say 20 minute oil change. And you hear it Hmm. so often that you just don't think it's that big of a deal yet. As you mentioned, you're touching the most expensive piece of that car and it's one little mistake where you're not on that day and you just if, don't tighten that oil plug, the drain plug or the tighten the oil filter that can make your day pretty rough, pretty fast. And it, it's, it's unfortunate, but man, I wish I, I like the idea that you've got with, you know, the, the checklist and making sure that you're, you know, even from a training pers- perspective, being able to show them through, how this should work and how this will go. And I know when I was growing up, it was always emphasized to me, you know, make sure that oil plug is tight, make sure that 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 filter is tight. Yet there were still times where I'm like, I think I got it tight, you know, like maybe mm-hmm. that's why I was a bad tech. But like it <laughs> it it is one of those things where I'm like, oh, I wonder how many careers that might have actually turned out all right had they just done that one little thing right. Yeah, I know. That is unfortunate. We, I don't think we did one last year, but it almost seemed like we would replace one engine a year in my area from a loop job. You know, it would be, you know, like an insurance thing or something like that. And it'd always be from, yeah, mostly the oil filter, but sometimes stripped out drain plugs. Uh, I, I was just thinking of something else that, is another thing that makes an oil change just not a simple entry level thing is we have so many cars in my shop that don't have dipsticks tons of audis volkswagens mercedes bmws all the you know asian cars and domestic cars now no dipsticks for the transmission either so Mm -hmm. if you service any of that stuff you need to learn a scan tool or you need to figure out how to read these levels properly i mean a lot of these cars, we have to change the oil and let them sit in a flat bay to warm up to the normal temperature so you can actually check these fluids. And so to to ask that of a, say, an 18-year-old that's fresh out of high school to learn that stuff, you know, is that's probably not the oil change you're going to give that kid first, you know? <laughs> so, but it, it, well, I, I think this is me showing my age now, but man, as a young technician, is that a little comforting though? Because I remember trying to read some of those dipsticks and how painfully hard it was to get an accurate (laughs) measurement because you just put oil in and there's oil up to the top and then you have to let it warm up and then you check it again five minutes later, whatever. It it, uh, Old school dipsticks can be really 
tough to read if uh, if you're kind of new to it. And yeah, I, I I think it's probably a better way to go. But like you said, it's introducing new technology to somebody that might not even be ready for it. Yes, for sure. Yep. I mean, there's some of them are hard for me to figure out and messing with like the information display and like a Mercedes are like, oh my God, come on, just give me a dipstick. <laughs> give me a dipstick. So moral of the story for all of you young technicians that are listening out there, the small details matter a lot in this business. And and just in general, I think as you talk through this, Gabe, and you had so much good insight over the course of this podcast, is that a small attention to detail kind of works everywhere. It works when you're running your business, works when you're working with a customer, when you're trying to diagnose a vehicle, anything you do. That little small amount of detail goes a long, long way. And I think you show that off in spades with how you run your shop. And and it was really, truly a pleasure to talk to you over the course of this hour because I it, it, so much of what you say resonates with, with me. I, I'm guessing it'll resonate with the audience, but just really respect the way you run your shop and, and look forward to talking to you on another podcast down the road. Uh, thanks a lot, Jay. Yeah, it was super fun. And Anything I can do to help technicians in this industry, you know, I, is great. I mean, I I want to give back with it as well. I mean, it's really given to me, so it feels good. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll certainly have you back on again at some point and appreciate your time and, and, and really, really enjoyed our conversation. Have a good day. You as well. Thanks, Jay. That wraps up this week's episode of Beyond the Wrench. Be sure to tune in next week for another brand new episode. As a reminder, don't forget to rate and follow Beyond the Wrench on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps us get Beyond the Wrench in front of other fantastic shop owners, managers, technicians, and dealers just like you, so we can continue to help improve, promote, and grow this amazing industry. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.